Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash, and this is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. And today is no exception. We have an incredibly notable person, one of the most distinguished asset protection attorneys, not only in the United States, I would venture to say one of the most notable asset protection attorneys in the world. Welcome to the show, Kevin Day. Hello, Victor. It's great to be here. Kevin, most people don't grow up when they're six years old in first grade saying, you know what, I want to be an asset protection attorney. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got into this line of specialty. Well, it was quite circuitous. I was a contracts drafter. I've got an MBA in international business and I had a nice little practice. We had a client come to my firm that uh, had a, a toy, a beach toy that was... Um, uh, ended up could be used dangerously. And even though there was all kinds of disclaimers, they got two or three lawsuits a year. And the Hague Convention on Trusts had just been signed by the U.S. And so there was this new trust that you could make an irrevocable trust and name yourself as the beneficiary, which was unheard of in the United States before that. So I came in at this very high level and I'm now an estate planning trust attorney. I'm a trust attorney inside now. It's a specialized contract. So I'm still getting my wish of being a contract drafter. Uh, but I came in as, uh, with these international asset protection trusts. So who's the ideal client for you? Who are the types of clients that typically engage you? Oh my gosh. Uh, certainly high net worth people because they have too much, uh, they have something to take. They have a target on their back. They don't want to start all over. But um, real estate investors, uh, tenants always end up uh, you know, being some kind of, of claimant if you roll the dice enough. Developers. Everything uh, from the slip and fall on up. Oh, yes. And, and you know, the first thing anybody who's been in the field for a while, they've had their suit. And what does the attorney first do? They look at priors. Most uh, tenants that sue are often the very first one was legitimate. And they said, oh, wow, I made $35,000 just for that. And I'm going to recreate it. Um, so you have these people that are really looking for something and they want to make it bigger and better for the next time. Right, right. Now, insurance will usually cover that stuff. Um, what we do for lawsuit protection is really what we want to do is put something in place for the catastrophic. We're not telling our clients to do away with insurance, but you don't want to keep up with the, the, you know, the Joneses on that. And, uh, it's too easy to get out of a, outside of a $2 million policy or something like that. You know, even a car accident, it's easy with a family of four to have a judgment that's eight or $10,000. Nobody in their right mind is going to carry that eight much 10, coverage. Eight or 10 million. A million. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Drop to zero. Well, and you know, one of the things that we often hear is that when, you know, the insurance company's accepting your premium payment, they're your friend. And then when it comes to claim time, they're your legal adversary. Absolutely. When you make that call, the first thing they do is thank you for giving us notice. We'll send it over to legal and they'll get back to you. They're looking for a way out. And true lawsuit protection, what we do is shifting ownership from you to a trust for you. And a trust is a totally independent party from you. And that's why Kennedy grandchildren have an $8 million judgment against them. They're living in a nice mansion and driving nice cars. If it's good for the big dogs, it's good for all of us regular folk. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe walk us through a little bit of some of the core concepts of asset protection, whether it is firewalling or separation of assets and liabilities. What what are the typical structures that you recommend first and foremost, maybe for someone starting out and then perhaps some of the more advanced techniques? Well, um, most people should have already been exposed, at least conceptually, uh, to separation of, of assets. When you go into any real estate attorney, corporate lawyer, estate planning lawyer, and you want lawsuit protection, they're going to say, how many assets do you have? Okay, you need seven LLCs. And that is a good start. However, uh, it can become an octopus. And uh, we like streamlining. And companies, whether they're LLCs or corporations, only protect one way from internal liability getting out of the box. If you get sued personally, they're coming down the ownership chain. So that's why lawsuit-proof trusts are so critical to a real lawsuit protection plan. And that also allows you to streamline. So you can have just one or two companies holding a bunch of properties versus having the need to have 14 LLCs because you have 14 properties. Right, right. So talk a little bit about when it's important to use structure versus, you know, for example, your company will have insurance. Uh, you may carry insurance personally, uh, different types of insurance. When is it diminishing returns for insurance versus some of these more structural remedies? Insurance I think is critical. You want to turn it over to them for most of the little ankle biter types of of lawsuits. But um, what people have found that have ratcheted their insurance up, they become more and more of a target. There are, uh, unfortunately, the underbelly of the legal community is looking for those fast settlements. Um, insurance companies, it's not about the right or wrong. It's what's the economic efficiency. And if it costs X to fight the case, or we can pay twice as much, even though there's no evidence that's going to support the other side, they want to settle out. So, um, you don't want to get too much insurance because you become more and more of a target. And, um, really these irrevocable trusts as a separate owner for you, if you don't own it, then it can't be taken away. So are these irrevocable trusts, are they domestic? Are they offshore? What typically, what's the approach? Uh, we have domestic and we have offshore. The international ones are not inexpensive. Uh, but they're recognized in all 50 states. Under U.S. law, you're removing U.S. court jurisdiction over the trust. So if somebody wants to litigate, they have to go to the Isle of Man or Cook Islands or Montserrat, wherever we put it, and attack the, the trust under that country's laws, not ours. The domestic ones are inexpensive. Any, uh, you know, some little sandwich shop, you cannot get enough insurance to cover one bad tainted evening. Right. Um, and, but these domestic trusts are still legally a separate legal owner from you. And as long, the only way to attack an irrevocable trust is a concept called fraudulent conveyance. And if you create it and put assets into it before you've met the person or, damage the person, the crane fell on them, or the boiler blew up, or you had tainted sandwich, uh, then it's impossible to be fraudulent conveyance. So at what point someone is in their journey as a real estate investor, they're starting to accumulate wealth, 
Is this something they need to be putting in place before they even get started? Are there certain breakpoints where you would say it's, it makes sense to start to look at this? I, I see myself more as an educator than a lawyer. And I've, I've got a, a lawyers back at my law firm that actually do the, the drafting and that sort of thing. I like working with the clients, the entrepreneurs, in one, educating them as to the options, but also creating a roadmap. I think roadmaps are wonderful. And some people can put everything in place all at once and others need to do it in stepping stone fashion. You don't want to just start collecting entities and then find, you know, a year and a half later when you're ready to fully implement that you're throwing three of the five, you know, LLCs you just, you know, created out out the window. So knowing what would be a good fit and why, I, you know, anybody who says, oh, I've got the answer, just trust me, give me a check, is doing you a disservice. Right. You, you don't need to go back to law school, but you know, need to know what your problems and issues are and why the tools I have are answering them and to what degree. And then you're very clear about what the objective is. And you might have to go there slowly, but a little privacy company in Nevada or, or Wyoming, they're inexpensive. And that's usually the first step for somebody who's a smaller estate. You know, they want to take baby steps. Um, we can add trusts later, but segregating assets and the right assets without creating an octopus is really important. One of the things I've heard, and I don't know if this is a rumor, if it's actually true, is that uh, trusts are one of these things that are often under attack, whether it's from, you know, the tax man or what have you to try and pierce the trust in some fashion. Can you share a little bit about what's been your experience? Is that true? Or is it just a rumor? Uh, that, that's just the rumor, particularly in this area. The asset protection trusts are a, a trust that's called a grantor trust. Up until when the Hague Convention was signed in the late 1980s, the only way to get an, a, a lawsuit-proof trust was to give all ownership and control of your assets away. That typically means, okay, you're giving part of your estate to your children, which also means you don't get to use it. It's not yours anymore. And um, most people don't want to do that. They want to, you know, if I want to spend a million dollars on me in retirement, I can do it. But these new trusts have allow you to be your own beneficiary, and it's still a recognized, irrevocable, and therefore lawsuit-proof trust under U.S. law. And those are tax neutral. They, they have no tax benefit or uh, uh, tax negative, just like a living trust, which everyone's familiar with. They don't do anything tax-wise, but they do have a very important function. And so the lawsuit uh, uh, versions are entities that look out for you, but they're legally not you for ownership. In the case of the international trust, it's not just me saying, hey, trust me, uh, these are legal. There's actually a form, a 3520 form, which is a K-1 for offshore trusts. It's part of the defense file. The IRS doesn't have forms for illegal things. So it's great to go into court and say, hey, you can't get this. I formed this three years ago, your honor, and the IRS actually makes me file a form every year. Here's five years of it. This right. is an irrevocable trust under U.S. law. Right. Powerful. It's powerful. Right. Fascinating. So if, some, if someone wants to get in touch, if someone wants to learn more, what's the best way to do that? Uh, email or call. My email is kevin at day-law.com. Ke kevin, K-E-V-I-N, at day, D-A-Y, dash, L-A-W.com. 
and my phone number is 858-755-6672, We'll definitely include that in the show notes. So if, you, if this is an area that you're looking to build wealth, if you are looking to protect your wealth, definitely something you want to pay attention to, whether it's for a domicile trust or perhaps even an offshore trust, different structures can be different solutions for different problems. And uh, definitely reach out to Kevin. Uh, Kevin, great to talk with you. Great to connect with you again. And uh, let's, uh, let's go enjoy some dinner together. Thank you very much, Victor. I look forward to helping your listeners and also our dinner tonight. This wraps up another weekend edition for the Real Estate Espresso podcast. In the meantime, have a spectacular rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow.